صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to the last show of 2022 of Palestine Remembered. This morning, we are joined by a superstar of Malaysian-Palestine activism, a woman from Malaysia. She's Singaporean, but we are joined by Mrs. Azra Banu. She is a founding member of Viva Palestina in Malaysia, of BDS Malaysia, and she's also a member of the Malaysian Women Coalition for Al-Quds in Palestine. Good morning, Azra. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm fantastic. It was such an honor. Azra and I met at the Run for Palestine, and she's got a daughter here, and she, her daughter and her son-in-law and grandkids were at the Run for Palestine and had a fantastic time. My daughter's been participating since 2015, and she sends me pictures each year, and I keep saying, next year, next year, and I'm glad I finally made it. And you finally made it. And Now, Azra, one of the things we always ask people is how they came to Palestine. What what drew you to Palestine? I would say a friend of mine sparked my interest back in the early 90s, which is talking about it. And, and you know what it was like in the early 90s. Information was scarce, right? We couldn't really get information. And growing up in Singapore, Palestine was never discussed. It was never part of the narrative or discourse, but kind of um, sparked an interest in me. And then um, mid-90s, we we got the internet going, right? And that's when I started to get access to more information. But I really got galvanized into action in December 2008 uh, with Operation Castlet with a group of friends. Uh, We thought uh, we just needed to do more than just raise funds and send to Gaza. So on 1st of January 2009, a few of us got together and um, started Viva Palestina Malaysia. And from there, gone on, BDS Malaysia was just recent, seven years ago, 2015. Mm -hmm. And I joined the Malaysian Women Coalition. I kind of got roped in because I'm used to organizing events for my NGO. So they roped me in because they had a conference um, coming up. So I got roped in in 2019 and it just kind of stayed on. So let's go back a step. One of the realities in Singapore, Singapore doesn't talk about Palestine very much because Singapore and the Singaporean government, they're so very close to Israel. A very, very strong ties between Singapore and Israel back in the 60s, right after independence, the Israeli government um, helped train the Singapore army and carrying a Singapore passport I can go into, which I did back in 2010. I went to Jerusalem and parts of West Bank and Tel Aviv and many other parts. And I could just go in with my Singapore passport, no visa needed, no questions asked, no, no serious questions at least. Um, so yes, the ties go back and they, they, do, they do see similarities. The two countries see similarities that they're both situated in quote unquote hostile environment with hostile neighbors, you know, without any resources, having to depend on their own wits, so to speak, right? So, yes, strong ties between these two nations. There is some very strong similarities be- between how Singapore came out post British colonization as an outpost, as a garrison state, perhaps 
as a bulwark against, you know, the Asian situation, as, as the State of Israel has been a military garrison outpost for Western imperialism and colonialism for so long. There have been some move towards showing a sense of balance, I have to say. Palestinian students get scholarships to study in Singapore. Few, not many, but there are there is a handful. And last year, there was a government-backed fundraising drive and they raised uh, millions of Singapore dollars. So there is, I, w- I won't say there is a balance, there is this semblance of wanting, there was to show a semblance of some form of balance, mm. yeah. We appreciate the Singaporean government for moving forward a little bit, but uh, yeah, me too. We, we need them to do the right thing and to long, long way to go, long way to go. Still, we need them to boycott, divest, and sanction. <laughs> That's what of all yeah. of our governments, particularly those ones of colour, and they should understand more than so many others. Now, Azra, you going back to Viva Palestina, you actually went to Gaza to try to break the siege there. Yes, I did. It was in. 2010, June, it was the VP5 land convoy that started out of um, London, out of UK, and um, cutting across France, Italy, Greece, Turkey, Syria, and then Egypt, and finally Gaza. Yes, I believe it was then the third land convoy and the largest. There were 150 vehicles with 300 volunteers. And I'm still close to a number of them whom I met on that convoy, particularly our New Zealand comrades back in uh, Auckland, Kiaora, Gaza. We've uh, we've done quite a number of projects together and we've got a conference coming up um, February next year, which I hope, you know, they're, they're able to attend. So, yep, it was a trip of a lifetime, an experience, you know, incomparable experience. Yeah. So yeah. in Malaysia, you raised funds and you bought the equipment in the UK or did you take equipment with from you? Yeah, what we did was we raised funds for six vehicles. Can't remember how much it cost. Could have been twenty five thousand pounds per vehicle, so that's quite wow. a bit. And the vehicles were filled with aid, namely medical, educational aid, which were loaded mostly in Syria. So we drove from London to I would say up to Syria, mostly empty vehicles. Okay. And the aid was purchased in Syria, loaded oh. onto the vehicles. From Syria, specifically, we were in Latakia. We flew to El Arish in Egypt. Our vehicles went by ship, right? And we met up with our vehicles, that's right, in El Arish before driving into, into Gaza. Okay, because I think when my brother did that convoy trip, they did the same way as you to Syria, but then drove down to through Jordan and then across into the Sinai and then into, into Gaza. That was the one that there was there were some skirmishes at El Arish, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, I recall that. I recall that because we had sent, uh, we didn't send any volunteers, but we purchased two vehicles driven by some other volunteers mm. on that convoy. Yeah. And did you have any trouble go from the Egyptians going to Gaza, or was it a smooth? We were held up in Latakia for seventeen days because um of approval yeah and in the end we got the approval minus four members of the convoy they were not allowed entries so that i think that's where the delay was they were negotiating initially i think number was higher the egyptian authorities refused to allow can't remember how many to um, go into gaza but um, they got it reduced to four so yeah I, I personally, the Malaysian contingent, myself, we, we face no no difficulty whatsoever. No difficulty. None. How long yeah. did you spend in Gaza? About four days. Okay. It was a quick in and out. 
quick in and out. I remember we were, I had just come out of one of the tunnels. Yeah, I remember going on all fours, crawling in one of the tunnels because wow. and I was, yeah, I was, I was really, you know, dusty and sandy. We just come out and we got word that all of us, we just had to leave, right? It was getting, you know, security reasons. We were very quickly shipped out of Gaza that night itself. Yeah. Yeah. Did you just go through the tunnels as like, you know, quote unquote tourist experience? I mean, you couldn't have got the trucks through. No, no, no. So once we went Gaza, we, we had formal program, right? Organized yeah. by the people in the authorities there. One of the evenings, so uh, we were relatively free. So they offered to take us um, to the tunnels. Okay. And yeah, yeah. And um, one tunnel was so huge. We had a shaft going down. Wow. We could bring in um, um, a minivan through that tunnel. Another was for little pebbles, right, for building. And one that I was on all fours was a gas tunnel, bringing a gas, a pipeline, bringing in gas. Wow. Yeah. Oh, oh, incredible. I was, when I got back and I told my children this, and my, one of my sons came back from uni one day and he said, mom, it's official. And I said, what? He said, my friends think you're cooler than me. <laughs> <laughs> from the tunnel (laughs) Azra you you are way cool ladies and gentlemen we're joined by Mrs Azra Benu who's a Singaporean in Malaysia and she's a founder of Viva Palestina Malaysia BDS Malaysia and a member of Malaysian Women's Coalition for Al Quds in Palestine. Azra, Israel's getting bolder and bolder. In the past couple of months, there's been a real challenge has happened in Malaysia. A Palestinian was kidnapped. Uh, he, he was held by an Israeli team, aided by some Malaysians, I'm sad to say. And then he was interrogated for, but it seems to me from what I've read, before the Malaysian authorities found out, they were able to raid the house and free the Palestinian male and arrest the Israeli Mossad agents, which is fantastic, as well as the the Malaysians that were helping them. Have you got any sense as to how this is happening? I mean, you know, Malaysia's got the most beautiful passport, you know, travel anywhere in the world except for Israel. You know, it's valid anywhere in the world. How is the Mossad getting in there? For this incident you just mentioned, it's fairly recent, if my memory serves me right. He wasn't held for days. It was just hours. So they had attempted to kidnap two men from Gaza. They succeeded with one. One escaped, alerted the police, and the police found the hideout. And when they got to the hideout, the Palestinian was in the process of being interrogated online, remotely, by, uh, yeah, and the police freed them, arrested the Malaysians. I have to say that this, this actually shocked us. We could not have imagined. I mean, we one can imagine Mossad or the Israeli intelligence services operating in Malaysia, one can imagine that. But to actually have Malaysians doing the dirty work, so to speak, right? And um, I don't want to bring religion in, but these are fellow Muslims, right? Yeah. So it, it was, I was getting nonstop messages from my friends, what's going on? Those not of, not in the Palestinian cause, so to speak. They yeah. were messaging me, what's going on? How How is this even possible? So it really shook us, I have to say that. To think that there are Malaysians who are doing the dirty work for the Israelis, that's one. And the, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the assassination yeah. that was in two, 2018. And someone known to us, such a gentle, beautiful man, Dr. Fadi, right? And mm. I, I can still remember when I got the news exactly where I was. We had been together just a week before that for a cyclothon um, activity, a BDS activity. And again, it's something unthinkable. And I have to say that immediately after the assassination... 
it rattled us, those in this course, right? It rattled us. Of course, we're small peas. They're not going to come after us, right? Um, mm -hmm. As our, our our chairman, BDS chairman, keeps reminding us, we can't even gather a quorum for a meeting. What are you talking about, guys? Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> They're not going to come after us. But it still shook us. It still yeah. rattled us that this could actually happen to one of us. Yeah. yeah. And as you said, you know, he, Dr. Fadi Muhammad Al-Batash, you know, he was a, a gentleman, an engineer. He was there just studying and, and lecturing, I think. And yes. As I remember, maybe it was a motorbike or motorcycle they drove up and just. That's right. He was uh, he was on his way uh, for Fajr prayer at the mosque, and uh, as he was walking down, he was just gunned down. We saw. We went over immediately when we heard, and we saw the bullet holes on the pavement. Right, and uh, a friend of mine uh, was there when it happened. He was at the at the mosque, and they could hear the gunfire. So it's it's. I can't get over it. I'm talking no. about it, and I, and I and I just can't wrap my head around it. We can't wrap our heads around it. Here we are, you know, in the past week or so, another half a dozen Palestinians being assassinated. You know, the assassinated Shreen Abu Akla. Mm. You know, the devastation and the killing and the siege and the occupation, and all of that's happening. The West is quiet. And Israel has elected its most fascist right-wing government ever. No arguments there. No arguments there. No, no, no. BDS in the world today, particularly in the West, if you talk about boycott, divestment and sanction, these three words immediately come with a label that is thrown at you as an anti-Semite. If you want to boycott, divest and sanction Israel, then you must be anti-Semitic. What's it like in Malaysia? Is there that resistance against these three words? Uh, Malaysia um, poses a unique case study. Support for the Palestinian cause is high among the Muslims. Okay, It is seen, and we've been saying this for years, it is seen as a Muslim issue, as a Muslim struggle, not a political, not as so much as a political struggle, right? When it should be seen as a political struggle with a religious dimension to it, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got good support for the cause among the muslims so to get them to boycott okay it's not it's not difficult to speak about boycotting israel right the problem comes when we're specific with what to boycott and um, in malaysia we really follow the guidelines of bds global right oh. we go with what they say so it makes our job easier and um, we've got four targets currently Am I allowed to say them out of loud? Of course, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we've got um, G4S, yep. Caterpillar, mm -hmm. Hewlett-Packard, and Puma. Yep. Right. Not easy to get people to boycott Puma, Hewlett-Packard. Not yep. easy at all. Not easy to get corporations. We've approached them. It's not easy, right? They see it as not wanting to invite trouble, whatever that means. They'd rather play safe, right? Mm -hmm. And um, there is a big corporation that's decided to divest from G4S, but can't make it public. It's just quiet at the moment, right? Um, so these are the challenges for BDS Malaysia. When it was consumer boycott in our early days, not BDS Malaysia, but Viva Palestina Malaysia, we were promoting boycott Israel as well. So in the early days, it was a consumer boycott of McDonald's and Coke, and which is not in our charts now. We don't look at McDonald's and Coke. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, nothing it's not, there's not really a correlation between McDonald's no, and No, no, right? That was, that was then. You're talking about 15, 15 years ago. Yeah. It's obsolete whereas, now. Whereas we know absolutely that Hewlett-Packard, you know, is complicit in the security apparatus that controls Palestinians, that counts Palestinians, that corrals them, allows for 
the Israelis to be able to find out where they are to ultimately incarcerate or assassinate the Palestinians. So there's no question that Hewlett-Packard is culpable. Puma, we know that the Puma sponsors the Israeli national team and the Israeli football league and the the same Israeli teams that play in Palestine uh, and deny Palestinian rights to football fields and access to football fields, soldiers who have purposefully and directly as snipers shot the legs of Palestinian soccer players, shot them in the feet to cripple them and to destroy their careers, and Caterpillar, who make a, a D9 bulldozer that is specifically designed for the Israelis, for house demolitions. These are armed and armoured bulldozers. It's just the most despicable thing. And we know G4S, particularly in Australia, they've been complicit in um, some of the most heinous crimes in Manus and Nauru and in onshore detention with respect to the refugees here. But G4S is a, a company also complicit in, in crimes against the Palestinians in favour of the Israelis. Is G4S in Malaysia? Mm-hmm. Um, it provides security for banks and... Um other outfits yep and it's not easy it's not easy it's not easy to get people on board to boycott these four specifically yeah we just got to keep raising the awareness and then hopefully look the reality is that you know with this most recent election and the most fascist government that israel has ever elected it's being increasingly hard increasingly hard to be israel's friend for a long time in the west you know there was a paul newman movie called exodus I, I know, yeah. You know this movie. You know, so many of these Zionist lines about, you know, this was a land without people for a people without a land. And we came and we made the desert bloom. And all of these falsehoods and lies and Zionist allegations to justify their colonization. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And when we talk about colonization, there's really three types of colonization. There's the number one type of colonization, which is what happened in this country, in so-called Australia, what happened in North America, Turtle Island, uh, Aotearoa, in New Zealand, where the white man comes and all but eliminates the indigenous people. And perhaps there's some remnants and to our Maori brothers and sisters who fought and got a treaty and have, have a significant presence there. That's the number one type of colonialism. Number two, colonialism is what happened in South Africa, where you're a minority controlling a majority. And the number three colonialism, which is what happens happening today, which is apartheid on steroids, Mm -hmm. is Zionist colonialism, which is your 50% of the population, and you deny the rights that you enjoy as a citizen, as a, a citizen of the State of Israel, as a Jewish citizen of the State of Israel, that nobody else does if they're not Jewish. And even with, within the Jews, there are stages of how your Jewishness, yeah? If you're an Ashkenazi Jew, a European Jew, a white passing Jew, you're at the highest rungs of Judaism in Israel. And then the next layer is, you know, the Arab Jews that came from Yemen, Morocco, Lebanon, the Palestinian Jews, the brown, the Arab Jews, and then down, you know, to the um, Ethiopian Jews. Ethiopian Jews, yeah. And they were throwing their blood out. I recall this so many years ago, the Ethiopian Jews had donated blood, right, to the blood bank. And they were throwing their blood out. It wasn't good enough for them. Talk about apartheid within their own system. Within their own system. Azra, when Nakba happened in 1948 and the Mizrahis came 
to what was Palestine. Children that were born, etc., uh, the Sephardic Jews, the Ashkenazis took the kids off them, you know, to try and make them white. Like in Australia, we have this, they had a white Australia policy. If there was a half-caste Aboriginal child, they would take them off the parents, stolen generation, and give them to white parents to breed out the Aboriginal. Yep. Yeah? And they did the same. The Ashkenazis did the same to the Sephardim. Shame. To breed, breed out the, the Arab, you know, we're going we're gonna to make them a bit whiter. No, incredible. And I, we can't help, I can't help, right, talking about uh, double standards. And I can't but uh, help but reflect on the Ukraine issue, isn't it, right? Uh, right. I mean, it's, it's right there for us, right there before our eyes. And, and it's astounding that it's not being picked up as it should, right? The disparity between the two situations, you know, how, how we're reacting to both. No, it's amazing. But, you know, as a, this is this is the way the world works. You know, that you know, would remember the reporting early on in February and March. You know, this this is not Syria. These people no. are civilized. They've got yeah. Netflix. Oh, I was I was here, actually. I was in Melbourne when that oh. happened and I, I couldn't believe it. Right. They're like us. They're blonde, they're blue eyed. They're... they're just like us. I met with a member of our parliament, of the Australian parliament, who had been to the Ukraine and seen and I said to him, I said, well, you know, now that you've seen what an Indigenous people will do, what an Indigenous people will do to restore their homeland, to fight for their homeland. The dignity, right? And the the dignity. dignity. Yeah. Surely now you can understand what the Palestinians, what the Palestinians feel. And, you know, this guy said, well, I think it's a bit hard to compare. That's different. Two, you know, <laughs> it's a different situation. I said, yeah. There's no difference. Yeah. The Israelis are the Russians. The Palestinians are the Ukrainians mm -hmm. in 75 years from today. The world is not going to accept that Crimea or, Don, Crimea or Donbass is part of Russia. The world has drawn a line and said, no, this occupation is illegal. You must return the land. You must uh, pay reparations. Why are we even entertaining the thought, entertaining the thought that we should be negotiating over the occupation, which is illegal? If we negotiate over something that is illegal, we in fact create the situation where we're normalizing or even just allowing it to be normal. Mm -hmm. it's, it's entirely unacceptable. As with the Jerusalem embassy issue, if Russia was to move its embassy from Moscow to Crimea, we would not accept that. Yep. And so too do we not accept that the Israeli capital is Jerusalem. Even if they keep saying about the UN resolutions, the UN resolution, as if it should ever be okay for anybody to say this to another human being, one people promising the land of another person to a third person. Mm -hmm. You know, just to put it into context, me saying Azra's house is Bob's. Who am I to say that Azra's house is Bob's? Mm -hmm. It's just outrageous. But yeah. the Israelis hang their hat on this. The Zionists hang their hat on the fact that there's a UN resolution. Even though partition was always a suggestion, there was no Security Council resolution and it had no basis in international law. Jerusalem was always supposed to be separate, corpus separatum. It was supposed mm -hmm. to be a, an international city like the Vatican City. Mm -hmm. And Oslo and everything since says that Jerusalem is a final status issue. Yeah. It'll be discussed tomorrow when we have peace, as if Israel wants peace. Uh, interestingly, when, when I was, my, 
I went to Jerusalem in 2010 as well. And I was there for a month. I was in East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem. Being there for the first time, I couldn't understand why was East Jerusalem slum-like and West Jerusalem so swanky and posh, right? And um, I had the opportunity to speak to many um, Palestinians there. And um, and then I, 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 they, they told me, right, because even to repair a pothole, we can't. We got to get permit to repair a pothole. We rented a car. And we asked for a street directory and said, no, we can't give you a street directory because they keep changing our roads, right? And um, I went to Ramallah and I crossed the uh, Kalandia checkpoint and I could just wave my passport and go right in. And uh, we drove out, we, we were driven back out and we, we could just bypass so many roads to get onto the highway where the Palestinians clearly could not, right? And, and um I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't understand it. It took me a while. It took a few days before this sank in, right? This 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 situation that I was put into. Yeah. Now this is this is the apartheid that you saw for yourself, Azra. Mm -hmm. And you 2010, 12 years ago, you know, things are much worse now. You know, mm -hmm. Israel June 1967 has defunded the, the Palestinian sections, has collected the tax, has not issued building permits, you know, has a, a multiple layers of apartheid rule to try and dissuade and to incentivize Palestinians, dissuade them from staying and incentivize them to leave. To leave. Mm. Yeah. So if you're a Palestinian resident, because you're not a citizen, a Palestinian mm. resident of Jerusalem, mm. Mm. you have to prove every two years that Jerusalem is the center of your life. Mm. And, you know, Palestinians are, are very uh, smart people, educated. They get scholarships all over the world. I know. And they I might know. leave for two years, go to Singapore or Kuala Lumpur for uh, uh, some education, come back, and they get questioned, where have you been? Jerusalem is not the center of your life. Boom, yeah. stamp on your residence. Your residency has expired. Now, yep. Now you have yep. to, you're a stateless person. Where are you going to go? They yep. deport you to Gaza, or if you're lucky, you get to go to the West Bank. But you could yep. go anyway. Yeah, reminds me of um, an incident a few years ago. We had brought in some speakers for a conference, and uh, one of whom was a young Palestinian from Gaza, and um, he's now doing his PhD in Turkey, um, currently in Malaysia for another conference. And um, he stayed with me uh, at, at my place, and then he came, went over to New Zealand to do a series of talks, and then from there back to Gaza. He got his visa, everything approved, right? And came back to Kiel. We sent him off to the airport and off he went to Cairo to go to Gaza. Next thing I hear hours later, he messages me to say, Auntie Azra, they sent me back to Kuala Lumpur. He got, he got, it, it, it's the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy, right? And he just got deported. They just didn't feel like allowing him back into Gaza. He came back to Kiel, came back to my place and every day he'd be checking on the Rafa border, right? News on the opening of Rafa border. It was Ramadan then. He was lonely. He 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 wanted his family, right? And it was it. it he wrote about it. Um, I I think it's an essay in a compilation of essays, and it's unthinkable. He just and he got deported. Uh, he ran out of cash, right? And and this is just at the women fancy of the Egyptian authorities. Really, no other mm. reason. 
and we shouldn't well, uh, underestimate the the complicity of the uh, Egyptians in this in, in the siege of Gaza. Azra, we've run out of time. Thank you so very much. Hopefully, we can talk to you again next year, perhaps from uh, from Malaysia when you've got one of your activities on. Yeah, we've got a conference coming up in February. Um, we're focusing on the plight of prisoners, Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. But not just that, we also want to highlight the different ways Israel imprisons Palestine, right? Not just physically, mentally, the education system, the heritage, the culture, the land, everything is imprisoned by um, Israel. So that's coming up in February. Uh, yeah, maybe Fantastic. we could talk about that. About that. Yeah, yeah, I would love yeah, to. In due course. That'd be fantastic. And listeners, if you go to the podcast, you'll be able to we'll put some links there for, for that conference. So if anybody might be in Malaysia at that time or might be interested, uh, they might be able to, to come along. Azra from Viva Palestine in Malaysia, BDS Malaysia, and the Malaysian Women Coalition for Al-Quds in Palestine. Thank you so very much for sharing some time with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much, Azra. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the podcast. Tell your friends and remember... There's never been a better time for a free Palestine. Like a river flow, surely to the sea, down and so it goes, some things come into real.